to the Sports Business Strategy Podcast. I'm Will Item. I'm Ramon Alialia. And I'm Brittany Ramos. I am talking to you from Oklahoma City, home of the Chesapeake Energy Arena. Brittany Ramos is talking from Los Angeles, home of SoFi Stadium. And Armand Alawalia is talking from Kansas City, home of what? GEHA Field at Arrowhead Stadium. Congratulations. Well, I appreciate the modest introduction there. Definitely uh, really exciting news a couple of weeks ago. We announced that GHA Field will be our field naming rights partner at Arrowhead Stadium. For those that did not read the the headline, we're not changing the name of Arrowhead. (laughs) Although, you know, uh, social media is always an interesting place to be. But not only that, I think one of the things I wanted to talk about was actually how many other naming rights announcements have been kind of in the news recently. Um, PNC Park uh, in Pittsburgh just signed a 10-year renewal. Um, the Washington State football team sold it to GESA Credit Union, not to be confused with GHA, which is a health employee or em- employee health insurance for, for federal employees. Is this, is this something in the water right now, or there's just a lot of naming rights deals going on right now? Well, we do have a resident expert, Brittany Ramos, who was just recently a panelist on the discussion of global naming rights, specifically to the U.S. Brittany, uh, you were on a panel, yes? I was. I was. It was really exciting. And, uh, you know, I think naming rights are just, it's, as I like to call it, a labor of love. It's a lot of work. As Armand knows, it's it's not simple, um, but it's you know when you find the right partner and the right alignment and the right moment, it's it's big for both brands. And I think that you know what we're seeing now, hopefully coming out of COVID, is you know brands wanting to get back into the space of you know getting out there. I think also up and coming categories that are not used to kind of maybe the U.S. media finding interest in some of these bigger entitlement opportunities that may have not been available before because naming rights is special. It is, you know, especially when you're trying to to make your mark in this market, when you're trying to, whether it's specific to a city, a state, obviously just the U.S. in general, um, especially on a professional league side. I mean, it just takes your brand to that next level, especially from an exposure standpoint. So they don't come around too often. So when they do, it feels like this competition of like, who's gonna get it? And there's like all this rumor mill behind and all these, you know, heard this person may get it or or this brand may get it. So I think it's actually just kind of fun to watch too of, of who ends up being the winner in the end and listening to how the partnership came together. So Armand, I would love to just hear from your end, a little bit of background, if you don't mind sharing with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you mentioned a lot of key points there that I think resonated with how this deal kind of came together, right? Uh, existing relationship, which you know, we started a relationship with them two years prior to the announcement, got to really know them, got to know their executive team. Uh, I think the timing is really also crucial as well. A very not nationally known brand that competes with the likes of Blue Cross Blue Shield, wanted to make a big splash and be that challenger brand, had a local fit given they started out at the Kansas City Rail Workers Association, trying to have, provide health insurance as kind of a, a pot type system way, way, way back when in the 1920s. So yeah, I think overall, it was one of those things where, you know, we started the relationship, we got to know them really well and figured out what was important to them and really made it work. So it was really exciting. And, and you know, we're excited to see what the next phase of this new partnership looks like. Uh, and then also 
from a you know data and strategy perspective, right? How can we start to further align and really target those key demographics for them is very, very niche. So uh, it's going to be a lot of challenging, kind of fun, trying to figure out how to target government employees, knowing that there are certain restrictions around how we can do that, how we can entertain, um, but also that they're everywhere, right? They're not just in Kansas City. There's obviously a large portion of them in Washington, D.C., but they're in Seattle, they're in Chicago. How do we start to use our national base to grow that as best as we can? Yeah, it's exciting times. And I think what we were all brainstorming about prior to this recording is just, I kind of mentioned it, but upcoming categories and unique categories, even with your naming rights deal, Armand, it's a unique category that's not necessarily the ideal kind of target brand for a naming rights deal. And then you're seeing some some come up here and there. I feel like it's almost like on the wire, you know, who's going to who's on the fantasy wire going to get this naming rights deal. So potentially the heat arena too, with some rumor mills and up and coming categories. So if you want to kind of like expand on what we're hearing in the naming rights market. I'll, I'll just say, yeah, because I, I was new to this as you guys were talking. What, what Brittany, you're referring to, there's a report that American Airlines Arena is an FTX naming rights talks. Uh, cryptocurrency trading platform FTX. Potentially, this is from sportspromedia.com. Just because I work in the NBA, I can neither confirm nor deny any of this. It's the first time hearing about it. Yeah, and I, I know that American Airlines has been, um, I think they've been trying to find a new partner knowing that American Airlines is their business has changed, especially with the with the COVID pandemic, that it's even been harder time. So I know the city of Miami or Dade County, I believe, is heavily involved in how the naming rights partner in terms of the value and everything kind of ties to that. So yeah, Bitcoin is very interesting, right? That seems to be a very popular trend right now. And I think obviously, if it was to be a naming rights partner, really makes a big kind of stamp as we are one of the 30 uh, NFL or NBA teams, sorry, that is going to be putting our name on the side of a building in a very large city not only an NBA venue, but also a massive concert venue when those start to pick up again. So it'd be a lot of exposure and kind of start to bring Bitcoin and that type of cryptocurrency into the mainstream. Yeah, and I think we saw that the Oakland Athletics were now accepting Bitcoin for sweet purchases. How do we feel about this, you guys? Bitcoin now coming in as a type of currency for us to actually buy products right and the uh, the price of bitcoin i think around the time of the deal was like fifty nine thousand dollars so it's one bitcoin for a full season of a suite so in theory the oakland a's say hey our suites usually cost sixty thousand dollars instead we will take a bitcoin whether they are um trying to just unload some open suites that they otherwise wouldn't have sold i have no idea or they are investing in the idea of Bitcoin of, hey, you know, give us our, the Bitcoin that's now worth $59,000. And they're taking a risk that maybe in a year or two from now, that one Bitcoin is valued worth $120,000. So I think it's interesting. I mean, my guess, again, not at all uh, familiar with the business dealings right now with the Oakland A's. My guess would be is that this is some experimenting that they are doing with open suites. And they're just saying, hey, we otherwise couldn't have sold it for the price we were looking for. Let's let's get our hands into this Bitcoin life and see how it works out. So I think it is good if you're just testing it out. But I'm I'm not ready to dip uh, my feet in all the way, Armand. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where 
I don't know if this was correct, but I'm pretty sure like the Seattle Mariners were accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment maybe seven, ten years ago, essentially. Will, do you know something about I know that? The Sacramento Kings had had uh, Bitcoin mm. machines. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks uh, have also sold a couple of tickets uh, for like percentages. Uh, this is the yeah. first time where I've seen a full Bitcoin, uh, something at such a high value, $57,000, $59,000. Uh, being accepted by the team. So as far as I know, this is the largest acceptance of one single use of Bitcoin. But what's interesting to me is that I think the value proposition is extremely beneficial for the Oakland Athletics, right? They get the PR around it, brings more hype to the athletics as a very innovative company in a very innovative market where they are trying to compete with other very innovative teams. So I know baseball is obviously, you know, a, a very difficult sport to buy a full season suite for, knowing that 81 games is a lot to manage, right? So the way I look at it is, okay, say they get one Bitcoin for it, and that Bitcoin loses a significant amount of value. Well, if that suite had set empty for the entire season or even a fraction of the season, okay, well, then I guess you're not really out any money. Now, obviously, how they pay for food and beverage, if that's via Bitcoin, that could be more of a tangible cost, but there really isn't much of a cost to having a suite occupied or not occupied. Um, and so I think it just really makes sense in the sense, if the Bitcoin goes up and doubles in value, well, they've got an incredible asset that they've got incredible value for that probably nobody would have paid 100,000 for, but they got someone who's gonna pay 60. So I think it's a great idea. Is it gonna work for the season ticket? We'll see. I mean, again, it gets into tax laws because what do you do with all that Bitcoin? Do you hold it? Do you sell it? Because when you sell it, there's tax implications. Again, I might be getting way into the weeds here, but I do think this is something that's very, very appealing and interesting in the future. Certainly into the weeds. And in all honesty, at some point, maybe we just need to have someone come onto the pod who is an expert on Bitcoin, because it's, yes. I feel like this is what a conversation I've had on Clubhouse and on here and with friends. I am talking about Bitcoin and I only understand half of what I'm saying about Bitcoin, the, the cryptocurrency market, blockchain, the, the ledger, everything. I understand just enough to know what people are talking about, but I still can't speak it fluently. Um, so I am not going to say whether or not the Oakland A's are wrong to do it because I only half know what I'm talking about, which is why I think I am uh, going to be a millionaire because I have invested in Topshop. Uh, I now have a portfolio that is worth $3,000. My return on investment is 75%. Uh, and I have no idea what any of that means or if it's true or not. So 75% already? Oh, it's, yeah, that's only because I bought a pack of cards for 14 bucks. You get three digital video cards for those who aren't familiar yet with the Top Shot world. And uh, basically, based on the lowest uh, amount that the card is going for at that current point, I got like a Kyrie card that's worth like $250. So since I spent $14, it's very easy for my return on investment to go up right now. But again, that's just what the market had it at the last time I checked. Uh, this will be breaking news when I tell you how much my actual portfolio is worth in a second. But continue to talk amongst yourselves. Uh, non-fungible tokens does that have any interest to you guys right now look I, I think this nft thing is it's creating a market for where there's a vacuum and i think that vacuum is the the lack of live sports being on yeah. and what has been sort of filling that for a little bit of time prior to this nft and cryptocurrency boom has been gambling and i think this is where this is i think all this mm -hmm. nft all of this cryptocurrency 
is just another form of sports gambling where people have a lot of time on their hands. They're trying to yeah. make a quick side hustle. And I think this is where this is starting to come because I think someone said it's like 90% of day traders lose money, right? Because mm -hmm. they don't know what they're doing. This is they're, they're not professionals. That's going to be me. Say, right? I'm definitely going to lose money on just this. Just like that sports is gambling, true. the yeah. average fan thinks they know that, oh, I, I'm an incredible, I know everything about sports gambling, right? There's a reason that Vegas, the house mm -hmm. always wins, right? So mm -hmm. I think a lot of this stuff, even the sneaker industry, which uh, to be fair, I've been quite a getting in a lot to the sneakers app. I've taken a lot of L's uh -huh. to be, you know, Sony culturally, culturally relevant. I mean, I got yeah. a, I got an early access W, which I was very pumped about, but I think, I think this is a huge foray into replacing live sports gambling into new avenues and new industries, which is very exciting. But I do think that like this at some point is going to have a bubble, I think. I was just going to say that. I think it's going to be interesting when live sports come back, when things start to come up and, you know, the nostalgia of going to a game, seeing live sports, even a physical trading card or piece of memorabilia. There's just such a nostalgia and emotional connection to those pieces, whether you're going to a game and you get a free t-shirt or you get a, you know, a collectible item and you bring it home and you have it forever, you know, will these virtual moments and so forth be able to really continually connect to that emotion of a fan or a person to where it continues to build that value and that like, oh, I want this type of thing forever. Or I don't know. I just think we're all kind of having some time on our hands to get invested in new things we weren't invested in before. Um, I also take a lot of L's on sneaker apps, uh, on the sneaker apps. And, you know, I've spent a little too much money on StockX and um, yeah, I'm trying, trying to beat the market. But, you know, when, again, when we all kind of get back in, into the world again, you know, will these virtual type of collector items stick with us? Okay. So Brittany, I know you're trying to have just a candid conversation with us right now, but if I understand anything about the market, it's all about speculation. So I'm going to need you to talk up top shot and all these things, because I think the, oh, value, yes. the value of my account, I think just dropped by $5 since you started talking. So uh, no, 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 this is going to be really big. Uh, it's the future. And everyone should be buying Top Shot cards probably at a 20% premium of what they're marked up for right now. That would be my advice to everybody, especially if you see a, a Jason Tatum card out there, serial number 105. I highly recommend that you get on that. 105 is Jason Tatum's favorite number. Uh, definitely buy it. Hey everybody, it's Will. Some breaking news. Since this recording, the Jason Tatum card has been sold. I'm good to go, even though I sold the card at a loss. I desperately need help with this. If anybody has any advice, perhaps a Top Shot Anonymous phone number for me to call, that would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the recording. Let's get to our guest. She's the VP of Strategy and Business Intelligence for the St. Louis Blues. That's right, more hockey talk for our Canadian Armand. So let's get into it. Here it is, our interview with Kira Emerson. All right, and welcoming on to the podcast, we have the Vice President of Strategy and Business Intelligence at the St. Louis Blues, Kira Emerson. Kira, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys today. Absolutely. Well, Kira, 
Uh, the first question we like to ask all of our guests is just a quick little background. Uh, you know, you started in baseball uh, before you came to the St. Louis Blues. So let's talk us through the journey of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so when I was a freshman in college at USC, go Trojans, I applied online at teamworkonline.com for an internship with the community relations department. For some reason, they called me in for an interview, and after the interview, they actually hired me. So for all of college, I was an intern there, and I took that opportunity to really figure out what I wanted to do long-term. Loved working with kids, but I've always been a bit of a math geek, so I tried to figure out where I would fit into the organization. And I ended up, when I graduated, I ended up getting hired as a revenue analyst. And my purview just really grew while um, the side of sports grew. As you guys are familiar with, strategy was pretty much not on the radar 10, 15 years ago. And now it's really um, eclipsed some other areas of the business. So just working as hard as I can to get my hands on as much data as I could and have as much of an impact as I could on the Dodgers. And then this opportunity came in St. Louis with the Blues. So I relocated took over CRM here, and then really proved out the value of spending time focusing on data so that we could impact uh, beyond ticket sales. So ticket sales, partnerships, F&B, retail, and really impact as much of the organization as we can. As I like to say, my job is pointless if I'm not helping the rest of the group grow and hit all of their KPIs. So that's been what my focus has been since I started here about six years ago. Very nice. And we know every organization is different by how they build up their BI, their strategy, their corporate partnership structure, and how they all work together. What does your department look like? Who's helping out tell these stories across all avenues of the team? Yeah. So when I first started, it was really just me and one person who was a combination of ticket ops and data management. We've grown. So I have a team in normal circumstances of four people focused on business intelligence. We have really a data scientist analyst who manages our data warehouse. We have a CRM specialist who right now has also helped us with a lot of our emails. We typically have an email person. Um, email actually reports up through BI, which I know is unique for some teams. Uh, but that's really helped us manage both the data and how it flows out to people and how we're using it to uh, maximize revenue and marketing communication. And then we also had a uh, business intelligence generalist. So really helping with a lot of our market research, putting together decks, both internally and for sponsors. So really those were the main focuses of my team. And then I actually also oversee our ticket operations department which is really helpful because so much of our data comes from ticket sales. So we've been able to work hand in hand on a lot of projects um, ever since I took that group over. And to set the table even more, I'm going to have to ask you to really quickly put some percentages together. How much would you say your time is spent working on the ticket sales side, F&B partnerships, and then maybe as a contrast, even what it would have been like three years ago to kind of show how things have changed? So I will say about 60% of my time normally is on ticket sales. About 20% is F&B and retail. About 15% is partnership. And the rest is what I would bucket under other. It's been a quite a shift. So when I first was hired, I was actually hired in the ticket sales department. So about 95% of my time was ticket sales. Sounds about right. No. Yeah. <laughs> and even now it's shifted 
under COVID, since I haven't had to spend as much of my time on ticket sales analytics, I've actually been able to shift a lot of it to, um, to sponsorship more so than normal and to retail since we've been able to continue to sell and reach people through merchandise. Um, so it's been interesting to watch it evolve as times change. I think something that's so interesting, you were in baseball for a long time in the LA market and then going over to St. Louis into hockey. Can you walk us through what that transition was like in regards to just your role and things you learned from the LA market that, that you took to St. Louis and just how that journey was for you? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that stick out to me. One was I was at the Dodgers so long that my role just kept growing and growing and growing and was very loosely defined. And it was kind of nice to have a little bit more clarity in my role when I first started here. The same thing has happened here, which is why I love my job. It changes all the time, but it's continued to grow. So it was interesting to see that shift. I think one of the nice things about sports is our goals are the same, regardless of what's happening on the field or on the ice. You want to engage as many people as you can. You're hoping that the team wins, but you have no control over it. Um, and you're really trying to fill the building both with fans and with clients. So that piece was very similar. One of the biggest differences I saw though was about a third of the market in LA is Dodger fans. Here, over 80% of the market is Cardinals fans, which is the biggest percentage of baseball fans for any market in the US. So when I started, Cardinals were the focus and you know we're the little brother down the street. And so it's been a passion of mine to close that gap um, and make hockey more accessible and more popular in St. Louis. Now, certainly helps to win a championship while I've been here. Um, yeah. But there are, other, there are other pieces to that that have really helped grow the, the hockey visibility in the city. So that was another big shift for me. It was just understanding the fandom around another team that wasn't my team and figuring out, okay, how can we make an impact too? And you talk about growing that fandom and making hockey more visible, accessible. What are some things you're proud of or some initiatives you guys launched that really helped to meet that organizational KPI? Yeah, so one of the things that we did that really paid off when we won, but was helpful when we were losing was really expanding how we were collecting data and understanding our fans. So we do a lot of lead generation online, but we were missing the people that were buying tickets on the secondary market. We didn't have visibility into who they were, but you know, they're a captive fan. They bought tickets, they came to a game. How can you then take that fan and have them come back to more games, eventually buy packages, and then really strengthen their fandom. So that's somewhere where we've seen a lot of success is capturing people while they're in the building, while they're focused on blues hockey and enjoying the experience. Um, so that's an area that we've grown quite a bit. The other part too is improving how our retail is messaged and also some of the initiatives that we do outside of the building. That's an area where I think COVID has also really helped us. So we started a subscription box program earlier this year, which is probably not something we would have had time to think through, research and execute, but it's a way for us to reach our fans that currently can't come to the building because of capacity restrictions or because they don't have the spend power to come out to multiple games a year. So trying to get people to watch more of our games and have those touch points at home when they can't be at Enterprise Center. 
being in hockey before as well, to me, hockey is one of the best, if not the best sports to watch live. You have a, a limited capacity, but fans now not being able to that experience that, what are some ways you guys have really engaged with them during the games that now they can't have that same kind of energy in stadium? We've tried to connect with them outside of games, but bringing those into the game. So one example is our power play dances very popular and memorable and just a big part, exactly a big part of the game experience. Given that this is a very audio format, uh, Arma, <laughs> do you want to explain what it is you just did when she said power play dance? Because I'm not entirely sure what that was. Well, as a resident Canadian and also Missourian resident here on the podcast, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go see a couple of Winnipeg Jet teams at uh, in, in St. Louis. And so when I got there, I had no idea what was going on, but everyone was doing this almost like it's almost like a touchdown signal but like up and down with your arms and I, I guess that's probably the best way to describe it so it made no sense to me but everyone seemed to be doing it in the is this when you get a power play or a power play goal it's when we go on the power play so you don't even okay. need to score a goal you just get excited when you have more guys on the ice than the other team and Armand you described it perfectly <laughs> And so we invited our fans to record via Zoom and record at home them doing the power play dance that is then aired either in-game here or when we have the opportunity to do it on TV. So trying to bring some of those elements that they would normally experience at a game to their homes or to their computers. This is why I love hockey. This is why I love hockey. When I watched in Canada, in, in venue before, obviously, you know, COVID, and also in America, it's a very different fan, right? And one of my friends at the Jets said that when the game is on, all the Winnipeg people are focused. Cell phones are away. Everything is tuned into it. There's no one on the concourse. And so he said when he had some NHL people there visiting, he said they were just like lost on the concourse. They're like, where is everybody? Like, I, I, they're like, oh, well, the game's on. Like, everyone's, everyone's watching. So I'm curious if you guys have gone into more of the fan profiles and understanding maybe what people are looking for when they come to the game. Are they looking for specific type of F&B, have you guys really drilled down to that from, from a data perspective? We have. I'd say we've taken some baby steps in that direction, and there's always a lot more to learn, but it's always interesting to me to go in with a hypothesis and then be proved wrong or right. So, you know, there was a time probably three or four years ago when a lot of buildings, when they were either undergoing new construction or you know, undergoing renovations, there was this push for gathering spaces, which you think about right now, I think we shouldn't be gathering anywhere. But we didn't see that in our fan buying behavior. And so we were able to make some decisions because we did undergo a lot of renovations in the building that lent themselves more towards traditional seating with, with different amenities and benefits. But instead of going that large group space route, and so much of that has come from both the data that we have from purchasing behavior, but also from fan feedback. We send out a lot of surveys and our fan base is very engaged. So really being able to get useful, actionable insights from that data has been um, important and really fruitful for us. So we've been able to make decisions based on how our fans want to experience the game and we are actually a market where a lot of people do the same thing. They get up from their seats during intermission, and then they want to be right back in their seats when the action begins, which I know varies from location to location. 
Absolutely. And again, when I went to the games, I remember the fans being very knowledgeable of what's going on, the NHL, specific players, uh, which was quite surprising as a Canadian, obviously living in the Midwest, more or less. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to get your perspective on was, you know, obviously winning a championship opens a lot of new doors, right? And what that means for, from revenue perspective, what that means for fan growth. On the fan growth side, how have you guys tried to take advantage of that? Or what have you guys done to improve or better on where you guys currently were? Yeah, so there are a couple of areas where I think we've seen a large impact. One is, you know, we are a small market, but we were able to expand our national reach. So before where we were very focused, especially when pitching to partners on what it's like to partner with the team in St. Louis, it's now partnering with the Blues and what impact that has and the reach it has, because that's a much bigger story than it used to be. Uh, secondarily, it's holding on to pent-up demand. So we have a wait list for the first time in our history and keeping those people engaged because they've placed deposits, they've expressed interest in spending with us and making sure that that is still an experience. Those people that bought on after we won still want to be a part of us, whether we win again or whether we just stay competitive, whatever is to happen. So that's another piece. And then lastly, I would say really taking advantage of our reach via retail and being able to reach our fans that are out of market by making sure people are wearing Blues t-shirts, whether they live in Washington or Florida. Going back to the part about learning more about the fans, you know, selfishly, I'm thinking about this from a corporate partnership perspective as well, too. And you can certainly look at the data of fan purchasing behavior to say, hey, you know what? Two years ago, 20% of all alcohol sales with craft, it's now up to 30%. We should really go after one of these craft partners. What are some of the ways that you're helping the corporate partnership team go after certain vendors or industries or categories based on the data you have about the fans? Are you doing it more from the purchasing behavior? Is this part of the surveys that you're sending out? What kind of sources are you using to build out that fan profile? Yeah, from a partnership standpoint, it's more focused both on survey feedback we get, but also some of these vendors that have come into the space over the past few years and just understanding what people are doing outside of the building, since a lot of our partners or potential partners really want to drive traffic back to their stores and make sure they're reaching the people that will spend with them. One, I think, really good example that we've done in the past is we'll ask people, are they more likely to purchase something if that brand is affiliated with the blues? And the answer is yes, it's just how strongly yes. And that has been a really important data point to share with partners because that only tells a great story that you're strengthening your brand by partnering with us. And that's, those are the types of data points that are important for us when we're talking to current sponsors about extending their deals with us or expanding what they do with us and then reaching out to new prospects who may not be that familiar with the Blues brand or with how hockey fans are in general. I think Armand touched on it. Our fans are avid fans. You don't have people coming to a game, sitting against the glass, being smashed into by a giant hockey player and just sit there and clap. They, they get up and they want to be a part of the action. So I think that fan avidity overall helps sell the story to partners. And then we also use companies like Scarborough or YouGov to help provide additional insights as to what people are doing when they're not here. And that's where my staff dives in, sees current trends that our fans um, are showing, where people are shopping, 
what brands they are feeling good about, that type of thing, so that we can then put those into pitches or report back to our sponsors and show trending over time too. When you're asking me how much more likely are you to use this product, are you asking it as a generality each time or do you make it specific to the category? Typically, we keep the questions as general as Mm -hmm. possible, um, just so they can be used more broadly. If there are sponsors that in a specific category, too, that want to ask those questions, we do. But generally, it's very focused on just your overall affinity with Mm -hmm. the team and with brands that partner with the team. I personally found that if questions get too specific, when people are taking them, they start to question themselves and what they're answering. So... We try to keep it as easy as possible. You said you have a lot of participation, which, you know, for some teams, they they don't. You know, it's surveys or can be really a hit or a miss sometimes and just kind of, you know, how many people respond. Is it incentive based? Is it, you know, how do you get your fans to be so engaged with sharing with you, you know, their their information and opinions for your data? So the first thing I would say is most of our surveys are very targeted. So you will only receive a post-game survey if your ticket on your account scanned into the game. So if you're the ticket buyer and you transferred your tickets to somebody else, that other person is getting the survey, not the ticket buyer, which I think is important in getting traction, both on the email being opened and then the survey being taken. Another thing we're very careful about is how long some of our surveys are. If it's a short survey, we don't typically incentivize but we will put in, whether it's in a text or most of our surveys are done via email, please take one to two minutes to complete the survey. People are much more likely to take a one to two minute survey than if you say, please spend the next 10 minutes of your time answering questions about your life. Um, so those are, those are our couple of keys that have been successful for us. When we do need to do a longer survey, um, we've done some deep dives on merchandise and food and beverage. That's when we start to offer incentives. Typically, it's a discount, which ends up driving people back to our website. So really, we all win or an enter to win, um, which we've seen that the discount helps a little bit more than the enter to win. But I think it's also going to vary based on your fan base. But we have used that very sparingly. When it comes from external survey sources, earlier you mentioned both Scarborough and YouGov. Do you have a preference between either of those two? Yeah, so we just started using YouGov in the past year. I wasn't familiar with them before, but their the name had popped up on a few in a few different conferences, and I was very impressed. I think one of their strengths is how often their data is updated. Because a lot of the time I'll be asked or we'll want to see, okay, how has this win streak impacted fans? And one of Scarborough's cons is that they only have two data releases a year and they're typically about, I think it's six months behind. So if you win a championship, you're not really seeing the fan growth for almost an entire year, but you're trying to send out pitches to sponsors within weeks of winning or even before you win. So there's a little bit of a data lag. Um, so that's been the biggest benefit of using YouGov. I think they also cover a lot more um, like relevant items that are happening in the news and just pop culture, which is really helpful for us, especially you know around COVID. Everybody wants to know, well, what are people going to do when you open back up? And you can start to see some of that data in YouGov, which we haven't been able to see in um, Scarborough before. but 
a lot of our sponsors are used to Scarborough data and trust it. And sometimes it's hard to introduce a new vendor. So um, YouGov for us has been great because they provide a lot of information to give to a partner to say, this is what this, this is what this data is. We didn't just make it up. And I think that's been a helpful transition. One of the, one of the, the, the big things for YouGov for us has been the ability to see the national and yes. also compare ourselves to the regional teams, i.e. Oklahoma City, St. Louis, Chicago. And we can kind of see that on in kind of one view, which has been extremely helpful as we are trying to grow outside of that regional-based team. But yeah, they've been extremely helpful. That is a great point because, as I mentioned earlier, our national footprint is a lot stronger now than it was even two years ago. But two years ago, I wouldn't have been able to provide partners that information unless I specifically reached out with a request that would then be delayed um, on Scarborough's end. So that I think that insight is really valuable, especially as you try to expand outside of the Midwest. I really wanted to touch on, you know, with COVID now gotten a long list of new assets that are driven by TV media value and probably a lot of interesting data kind of coming out of that. In kind of walk us through, you know, the helmet sponsorship, obviously some new placements, you know, what have you guys seen, um, you know, as being successful or just any other insights on this new opportunity from a media standpoint? Yeah, well, I give a lot of credit to our sponsorship sales and service teams because a lot of that information came out right before we even knew we would be playing. So the turnaround time was very short, very quick. And they did an excellent job of getting partners on a lot of the new assets. And part of my job is now looking to see okay, what assets are really driving value for our partners versus which ones really aren't. Um, it's still early. We only have data on a few games, but we use partners like we partner with Gum Gum Sports um, to get a lot of that uh, media valued. And I think one of the pleasant, maybe not surprises, but one of the pleasant outcomes so far has been the TARPs. I like to think of it of turning a negative into a positive. We can't have a full building, but at least you're getting value out of those seats that in a normal season would just sit empty. And now they have sponsor branding on them and it's TV visible, it's large. So we're seeing a lot of value come out of those. Well, Kara, I wanna give you the opportunity to brag about the work that you're doing in St. Louis. We're still working on a name for this segment, but uh, it is Proof Strategy Works any anecdote from the last 24 months where strategy had a hand in moving forward in a business goal from a revenue generation standpoint, whether it's food and beverage, sponsorship, wild card for you. Yeah, I think, you know, I think this ties into all of those elements, but really just being able to collect as much data as possible and making it as accessible as possible to the right people interpreted in a way that is actionable. I just... I think it is so important to make it so that data is easy to understand, digest, and then act on. Otherwise, really, what is the point of me being here if I just send out an Excel spreadsheet, which I think is beautiful and I love, just <laughs> not going to be able to interpret it. So for me, that's become a really important part of strategy touching every part of the business. One of the things I look at as a big success is somebody else came up with the idea of a subscription box. And the first thing she thought of was, Let's do some fan research to see if this actually has legs with our fan base. And that never would have happened six years ago. So I consider that a win. That is something where we have now infused the idea of making sure we have data. And if we don't, figuring out a way to get it before we make any decisions where we're either spending money 
or spending time on different initiatives. Um, so that for me is really big. When I see the turnaround of, instead of me approaching a department, a department approaching me and just knowing that we've really become ingrained in part of the process of what we're doing across the board as a business. Great. So you talked about, obviously, since the, the Stanley Cup win, you guys actually have an, uh, a waiting list for tickets now. So with that said, and having a lot of your role focused on kind of ticket sales strategy and so forth, how what have you been kind of working on or shifting over to um, just from a day-to-day perspective now that, you know, like it's a great thing, there's a, a long waiting list, but now, you know, maybe... The, the ticket sales efforts may not have to be as heavy. So where are you kind of shifting your strategy currently? Yeah, more of my time is spent on initiatives that are maybe more marketing or fan generation driven, but still have a tie to ticket sales. So for example, we do put a cap on our plan sales, which is what the wait list is for, because we still want to make sure that we're engaging with our other fans that have been here either from the beginning or that just started becoming fans recently. And one of the ways that we do that is through different theme nights. So I work with our ticket sales department to figure out, okay, what themes make sense for us? What's actually gonna bring a new fan in based on our partnership with something else? So um, I'll use the example, a lot of baseball teams do it, but a Star Wars night. So- Yes, favorite movie, so. (laughs) Well, so back when we weren't selling a lot of tickets, we could sell thousands of Star Wars night tickets and bring that probably Star Wars fans, but have na- maybe never come to a hockey game before. And we didn't want to lose momentum on that, but we just have to be more strategic about which theme night we're doing. So rather than doing everything that's going to sell 50 or more tickets, we now spend a lot more time analyzing, okay, what gets us the greatest immediate return? And then also what's going to bring us the greatest long-term value from prospective fans. So that's another area where you know, you kind of work on efficiencies and priorities instead of just get as many people into the building as possible. And then again, just more time spent on non-ticket items like partnership. We now have more of a focus on because there's a lot more creativity there than with just having 18,000 people in the building in a normal season, the retail aspect too. That's awesome. And I love anytime you guys have a Star Wars night moving forward, I'll take a bobblehead or a hat and proudly hang it in my office here. We can make that happen. Awesome. So Kira, it is Women's History Month. And as female in sports, I always love to connect with other incredible females. And hockey is a very male-dominated industry, male-dominated sport. Just any advice you have out there for young women or just, you know, anything you want to share about your journey? Yeah, I think it is so important for younger women to see those of us who have been in the industry for a while continue to grow and rise through the ranks. And when I first started, I didn't really have any female mentors. And it's really hard to see yourself in a position where nobody looks like you. So I would encourage people to find those people that will motivate them, keep them interested, know that it can be done and not give up. I started as an unpaid intern for a baseball team. And now I have a seat at the table. My voice is heard. I think you know, one of the things that women sometimes struggle with is making their voice louder when there's a room full of men who tend to be louder and more outgoing than, than women are. And so for me, it's important to make sure that not only am I sitting at the table, but I'm pulling up a chair for another woman. 
I just got chills when you said I also want to make sure I'm bringing the chair to the table. I think that's just that's such that's that just had that just like hit my soul. I just think it's so important for females to not only be in those positions where they're visible, but also create, you know, a path and, and an opportunity for those, you know, growing in, in this career to to have an opportunity to get there as well. So I think just women supporting women, women empowering women is so important. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that with us. I think that that quote, I think I have to write down somewhere. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Great stuff from the VP of Strategy and Business Intelligence for the St. Louis Blues, Kira Emerson. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you guys. You-